All right, Josh Smith here, live at my Flat 5 Studios. My guest today is a great friend and a huge influence on not just my playing, but also my outlook on this whole business of guitar. Not even, And what's funny is it's changed, not just in today's world where I'm doing these videos. It was initially the playing and the sessions, and, and he was always there with kind words, advice, you know, some guys are never the, you know, the guys who just freely give you good advice. They're always trying to keep their spot. Tim was never that way. He's always been so kind to me, and I truly consider him a, a true friend. He's a legend who's played. It'd be easier to list the people he hasn't played with than the people he has, so I won't even go down the list. But it's really, honestly, a pleasure to, to have you here. And the fact that I can call you up with a question or borrow an inset for a chair from you blows my mind sometimes you know when i look through my phone and i see your name there so everybody please welcome tim pierce thanks josh i was telling somebody the story the other day about how we met each other and uh, uh you gave me back the backrest that i loaned you for your chair and i borrowed a music stand from you it's like can i please have a, a cup of sugar josh <laughs> yeah. it was and they were actually blown away by why wow, you guys really are kind of you know in the neighborhood together and and you know yeah in fairness we do live pretty close to each other yeah <laughs> it's funny awesome. like james santiago from universal audio who actually i have to do something for right after we're done with this i could walk to his house so it's like dude could i borrow power supply or this or that it's always yeah 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 it's nice to have got it is <laughs> so tim I start all of these by asking everybody a little bit about their family history and how the guitar ended up in their hands. I know you're from Albuquerque, and I wonder, you know, my family was not musical. My parents don't play. I really don't have any musicians in my family other than my uncle, but he was living out here. So in Florida, I didn't have anybody. And I'm wondering, was your family musical? How did the guitar end up in your hands the first time? Uh, you and I are so much alike then, and uh, that's the first I've heard of that, and it's very interesting to me that you would say that, because it was the same for me. Uh, my mom and dad were not musical, but what was amazing is Albuquerque, New Mexico, that desert, and particularly the AM radio, were absolutely magical. I was born in 1958, and by 1963, and when I was three, well, let's say 1961 even, when I was three years old, mm -hmm. I was becoming obsessed with songs I heard on the radio. And I remember the song Downtown by Petula Clark being sure. the most magical thing I'd ever heard. Puff the Magic Dragon by Peter, Paul, and Mary. And that was before the, the real game was on, you know, when the Beatles showed up and Otis Redding and B.B. King and yeah. Glenn Campbell. And I mean, the AM radio was like full on diverse, every style, every great artist. I fell in love with Top 40 on the AM radio, and it literally transported me into a, a world of... So I lived in this desert, and, and it was beautiful, and, and and then my family was kind of a nightmare, you know? And you know how that is? <laughs> you, sometimes when you survive a bit of a, a, a nightmare, you know, you depend on something you fall in love with something. And I tried falling in love with sports, right. uh, but I was too small for that. I mean, Terrence Trent Darby once said to me, you know, it's it's the little guys who become musicians because they can't, you know, they can't <laughs> play sports. And there is some truth to that. You know, I never forgot when he said that. So I was that guy. I, you know, I wanted to be a basketball player too, but I didn't have the size for it. So 
uh, it, it really it didn't come from my parents and my family. And it's very interesting to know that that's your situation, too. It came from songs I heard on the radio. And it, I could not have been born at a more perfect time. Yeah, yeah, true. I mean, you had the about to be the birth of, you know, Beatles and all of that stuff. What did your parents like to listen to? What kind of music were they into? I don't know that they listened that much. They they liked the, the same. I, well, let's let's just speculate that they liked the radio as much as I did because it was on all the time. And I had two sisters and they were listening to the radio all the time. So that's a really good point that they actually I never gave them credit for that. They opened that world to me. I mean, they they liked it, too. We didn't really have a I don't think we had a stereo in the house until I started getting really obsessed around 1968, 1969. Then I remember my dad bought a huge stereo. Uh, I have to thank him for that too. God, you're bringing back all this stuff. And, and, and that was amazing too. But, uh, cause you know, in the late sixties, that's when it was really on Hendrix, yeah. you know, was my hero, just like everybody else. And then Clapton and Johnny Winter, BB King, Billy Gibbons. So I, I would say my parents liked the radio also. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So how how'd the guitar end up? Did you beg your parents for it? How, how'd you get the first one? You know, it's probably a similar story for all of us. I thought that I would be a drummer because I was obsessed with the sparkle finish on drums, you know, <laughs> you remember that. But and that came from me loving drag racing. I loved funny cars and funny cars oh. had like 35 layers of gold flake, you know, red candy apple red paint on them. Yeah. So I would go to this drag strip and, and look at these amazing uh, cars. And so when I saw a drum set that had those kind of finishes, I wanted to play drums. And I thought, well, this will be easy too, probably. Or or like many kids, you you gravitate toward the drums first because it's physical, you know. You feel like oh, I, yeah. can, I can do this. But... That I, I remember taking drum lessons and it, it didn't it didn't feel that great. So the next thing that happened, I started drawing guitars. I would sit there in grade school and I would draw guitars, you know, while the teacher was trying to get me to listen and stuff like that. My sister had a classical guitar. This is it. God, you're bringing it all back. My sister had a classic. He had a gut string. And I started picking that up and going, oh, this this is this feels I want to learn. I want to learn some chords. I want to learn this. So at age 12, I got guitar lessons. My mom bought me a harmony guitar and a, har a harmony amplifier, two terrible instruments, but it did not matter. And I, I had an electro harmonics LPB1 power booster that I would ah, shove yeah. into the input of the harmony amp and just explode it. And then it kind of sounded like Led Zeppelin or something. Wow. But then what happened? Oh my, my mom said, okay, I'll match your lawn mowing money. I bought what now is a vintage Stratocaster <laughs> for $300. Yeah. Because uh, I knew the harmony was not a great guitar. So really by the age of, you know, 13, I my mom helped me buy, oh, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? A vintage Stratocaster. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but I mean, it sounds like your parents were so supportive. They took, they got you drum lessons, even though that didn't work. They got you a guitar and amp, guitar lessons. So they were into it. They they were into it as long as it, you know. They figured this is a cool thing, but uh, you know, it, it's not serious. And and so I have to give them credit for that. And I remember exactly. I started playing guitar at age twelve with a ferocious obsession. And that's right. a little late because, you know, Steve Lukather started at six. You know, I wish I had started at six. When did you start? What year? 
Well, I mean, how old are you? I started yeah, at six. See that you, you, it's, it's, it's better if you started at six. So I started at 12, and I was obsessed immediately and full on. Full on. Every afternoon, come home from school, play guitar all afternoon, into the evening, dinner time, you know, probably more guitar after that. So it took exactly seven years for them to realize, oh, we've lost him. <laughs> but they fought <laughs> me for exactly seven years. Yeah, and by the time I was nineteen, they finally went. We give up. <laughs> well, I'm I'm always curious player. about that too with people's parents, especially once you get into high school, because so many of us have similar stories where you start young, and you get obsessed, you progress very quickly. Maybe you make friends in the neighborhood who play and start a band, or maybe even you start playing with older cats like I did because you progress quick and you you find a way to yeah to get out and gig. Then the parents start to realize, uh oh, like, yeah, this is for real. Like, this could be his whole life. And my parents were always really cool with it. My grandparents were much more scared about it. They expected college and all, you know, all the, the typical things. Um, how, how did your parents feel when you got to that spot? Were they worried? Well, uh, I did the same as you. At age 14, I joined a band with 17, 18 year olds. And. Mm. I would go to parties and because everybody was like, I was looking up at all these, you know, adults, you know, and I, I would, you know, I remember like finding a dog and petting the dog at a party because I, it was like, I felt so out of whack. And then I played in bars when it was not legal to play in bars. That whole story that we all do, you know, I was like 17 playing in bars when you had to be 21 to be there. But here's what happened. Once at 19, my parents decided, okay, he's going to be a guitar player. He's not He's not interested in college because I went, I did a semester of college, but I just wasn't interested. I wanted to play guitar. I was obsessed still. It was all I wanted to do. So what happened was they actually helped me and my, they probably had different intentions. My mom really wanted me to be whoever I wanted to be. And my dad wanted to get me the hell out of the house. <laughs> yeah. And okay. so my mom gave me, my mom gave me $2,000 and, or they did. They did, and my mom gave me her used car, and my and they gave me two thousand dollars, and I remember driving away with a U-Haul trailer. I just left for L.A. Like, here we go. I remember my dad standing there. He was so happy to see me drive away, <laughs> and it's good because he wanted me, he wanted me to be on my own. Any dad would want their son to be self-sufficient, and he that he was that was it. It was like, okay, if you're going to do this, you're going to do it. And we're, we'll help you. We'll give you this push. Yeah. But so you're out of here. So you took, I mean, um, pretty much immediately after high school with, you know, one semester of college and, you know, gigging under your belt as a teenager, you immediately took the L.A. leap. Did you even talk to anybody about what that would entail, moving to L.A. and, you know, what it was going to be like, what to expect? Or was it completely blind? Well, it was... It got more and more frustrating just to be a guy playing in bars in Albuquerque. So you take something that's feeling worse and worse all the time and you go, what's the alternative? I got it. I don't care if what happens out there. All I cared about it. If I could move to L.A. and actually just make a living playing anywhere on doing anything on guitar. That's all I you know, that's all I cared about. And I did know a roadie for a band, The Babies, and that was John Waite's band, Jonathan Cain, who joined Journey, and he was from Albuquerque, 
And I also had an actor friend who had moved out. So I actually, I drew it out in Albuquerque as long as I could. I didn't move to L.A. till a, a month before I turned 21. So okay. there was a couple of years of just trying to make peace with playing in bars in Albuquerque and me going, I want more. I want more than this. I want more. I always dreamed of California because I was, since I was a little kid, you know, all the TV shows were in California. That was easy, that idea. So it was a leap of faith. And I remember when I first got to L.A., I was sick to my stomach every morning because it was so big and so intimidating. And I only knew this one guy, but he hooked me up with a musician who needed somebody to take a gig that he was leaving. Now, you understand this, right? He was actually exiting this band that was playing out. And in order mm -hmm. for him to do it gracefully, he had to slot somebody in sure. to, to cover that gig so he could move. You know, he didn't want to burn any bridges. And that was my first gig. It was a band called Shandy. That band got a record deal. And I was doing my first record very quickly after that. And I remember... I would do pickup gigs. I would go into the recycler and for $30, I'd, I'd do a rehearsal for somebody. There were showcases all the time. You would do showcases to try and get record deals if you were an artist. So $30 rehearsals, $50 gigs, demos. I actually reached a point where I could keep $700 in my bank account. My bank account, you know, wow. I started with 2000 It went to 700 I was able to keep it at $700 and start buying gear and keep paying my rent. And I knew... I was okay. It was it was amazing. Well, that is amazing. I mean, considering, I mean, I know the feeling, and obviously, it's I'm 20 years later, but whenever when I get here, I'm 22 years old, and I had no idea what I was gonna do, and I'd already spent you know 10 years being a professional, but only playing blues and my own music, and you know never played for anybody else, never done a session for anybody else, never even been in a studio for anybody other than to record my music. So it was like I literally came here having no idea what to do and how I was going to do it. So to be able to have that happen and, and sustain yourself, at, I mean, you know, what did you call your parents? Like, I, I did it. <laughs> well, my dad was a tough one, but my mom was they were they were super happy that I actually was self-sufficient, super mm -hmm. happy and and. But the real, the best moment, I'm just going to jump ahead, then we can jump back. The best moment for my parents was I got this gig with Rick Springfield when he was a star two right. years later. And they came up to Red Rocks in Colorado. I don't know if you've ever played there, but it's spectacular. Yeah. And we did a gig there, and there's an underground tunnel out to the soundboard. And so they were sitting right out there by the soundboard. And, and in the middle of Rick's set, he does a kind of an acoustic thing. And I went through the tunnel during the middle of the show and sat with them. And there was, you know, sold out, huge stage. And I was taking a break in the middle of the actual concert to go out mm -hmm. and sit with them. It was, that was, that's really when it was like, you know, it was awesome for all of us. That is awesome. Yeah. Okay, so so you're playing with bands here in town. What's Do you remember, you said you did some demo sessions and stuff. Do you remember the first session like at Capitol or Sunset Sound or something like that, Ocean Way? Well, this band that I did, yeah, it's this band I did called Shandy, they were produced by Mike Chap Chapman. And Mike Chapman and Nikki Chin were the biggest producers in LA, LA at that point. Uh, it, it, it was the beginning of New Wave. I mean, he produced The Knack, My Sharona. 
some all, all this crazy stuff. So they had a label, a new label, we, and and we went into what was then United Western, and that the back room that everybody goes to now it's East West. You know, yeah. the, the room in the very back where the Chili Peppers recorded and everybody. And at that time, it was so crazy. We recorded right back there. You would walk out the door, and you know that door in that skinny parking lot. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a building across from that alley that was SIR. And in that building, and through another open door, was Van Halen rehearsing. Oh, wow. So I would literally, this was 1982... I would walk out the door into the alley, look across at another open door in the adjacent building, and there was and just listen to Eddie Van Halen rehearsing <laughs> there for their their tour um, right before their second record. It was right. insane. It was yeah. insane. It yeah. was like so inspiring. Yeah, that's some only LA stuff. It truly only in is. LA. Yeah, can that yeah. happen? Yeah. Yeah, did you know, okay, so did you know when you were doing that, did you have an inkling that, you know, you'd prefer to be doing studio stuff, or did it come just over time as you did more and maybe enjoyed it? And also, after the Rick Springfield and touring and stuff, did you start to, was it partially the burnout from that? It, 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 was, a, it was an exact feeling that happened later. What happened was I took the Rick Springfield touring gig when I was 23, and... And I had no, you know, I didn't have studio skills that were good enough, frankly, to sustain a studio career. I could, I did okay. I, I was doing records. And when I had help and when I was in a band, I could actually do the job. But you know the job of being in the studio. you got to be able to do anything and everything immediately yeah. in any situation. I didn't quite have that. So when I joined Rick's gig, it was like, this is a major tour. I'm doing this. You know, this is, this is, this is what I've always dreamed of. We're going to go tour. So... In all the way through like 1983 to 1987, I did four world tours with Rick. And it was kind of perfect for me because I I was not really ready to be a studio musician full time. I was gaining those skills. And it also was a big enough tour to where I could kind of get the whole landscape of the music business. But I realized a couple of things. And the main thing is this. If you take a tour... The other guy gets the session because you're not there. It's that simple. And and I began to really feel that because it's like when you disappear on the road forever and you want to be a studio musician. Now, that equation has changed because it's not quite as crucial anymore. This is then. But if you wanted to be a studio musician, you had to be there for every phone call. Mm-hmm. And i remember jeff percaro actually became a friend of mine we would do a lot of sessions together this was later in the early 90s and jeff actually was going to produce his first record it was boss gags and he called me to play guitar on it and i couldn't because i was on the road with al Jarreau. that was the late 80s or early 90s and that was the moment when i realized oh i really have to if i'm gonna if i want to be a studio musician i have to not say yes to any more tours now that backfired on me once because I got offered a Joe Cocker tour after doing a record with him. And I said no and they upped my fee. And I said no again and they offered me even more. And I said no again. That summer, I had no work whatsoever. And it was the worst feeling. But maybe during that summer, I did a couple of demos that led to records. See, that's the thing. And you know this, when you do a session or any kind of gig with anybody, 
you can make a connection with somebody sure. in the band or on the stage or watching you that will be lead to the greatest thing you'll ever do. So every every session you do, great or small, important or unimportant, yeah, is important in the sense that it can lead to amazing things. Absolutely. I'm curious, do you remember in the, you know, initial stages of, you know, while you're on tour with these different artists and doing sessions when you're not on tour, when you said you didn't have the, the studio chops yet, do you remember sessions with guys like Procaro or, you know, guys who were vets already at that time and like basically kind of taking notes on like, okay, this is, yeah, or, or sessions with other guitar players even where there was two guys and seeing like what you needed to check check off the, the skills you needed to acquire because i do i remember that big time oh don't i know it i mean uh, early on i sat next to steve lukather on a you know japanese pop session where he was able to display his skills in that situation mm -hmm. and it's so humbling and you realize you know you're going and he's over there being larry carlton you know it's like it's it's yeah that is that is a kind of school that I'm so grateful for because when you see, here's the deal, here's the deal. And musicians always are guilty of this. In New Mexico, I would listen to a Steve Lukather part because I was aware of everybody on every record sure. and go, I could do that. And then you show up and you realize he did that off the top of his head yes, in one exactly. take. Yeah, yeah. And you can it do just, it because you heard him do it. He did it out of thin air. <laughs> Yeah. exactly well put yeah. and and that lesson i'm so glad i learned it early and i'm so glad i had a decade decade in la the thing about la back then is it was actually a nurturing place interesting it's hard for me to even say this because i thought it was really intimidating and, and competitive but really it was pretty nurturing you could work your way in and, at all different levels and be kind of you know you know i learned on the job yeah here's the deal i was i was obsessed with soloing and when i got here I had to learn to play rhythm guitar. That's yeah. that's the short answer. Well, I, I just think back to like, you know, st with Wrecking Crew days and stuff, even seeing like when it transitioned from, you know, Tommy and, you know, Glenn Campbell and, and you know, Barney Kessel and all these guys to like Louis Shelton and then seeing like Larry learn from Louis Shelton and, you know, seeing guys then, of course, a million guys learn from Larry and seeing Luke learn from, from Larry and Lee Rittenauer, and then seeing Landau be right behind Luke and their friends and learning from him. And then I remember like my first few sessions not knowing at all what to play, and then being somewhere with Mike and being like, holy shit, that's how you do it. You know, like look at the look at the way he just came up with that part on the fly. I it's it's fascinating to me how that works. Yeah. Beyond fascinating. Uh, to me it was magic. You know, yeah. and yeah. I, I, it took me a long time to get pretty good at it. By the time I worked with Jeff Percaro, that was a decade. You see, I got here in 1980, and when I started doing sessions with Jeff, it was the early 90s, and I, I had a, a fair amount of skill at that point and a lot of heart and drive. And the reason I got to know him is because we would both get there early. I got to the studio early for every session because I was just frightened and I wanted my gear to work and I wanted to make sure everything was just so and I wanted to relax and practice. So for like a, an 11 a.m. session, I'd get there at 9 a.m. and make sure all my gear was perfect. Yeah. He would get there early because he was driving in from Hidden Hills and I think he didn't want to, you know, he just wanted to relax. And, and, and so we would actually spend 
I would end up in rooms with him where it was just he and I mm -hmm. alone in the studio. And we would actually even kind of jam sometimes. It was awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Man. So when did it, do you remember a moment where you, you had reached like a level of self-sustainment just from sessions and, and realizing it like this is, I can do this now, just only this. Yeah, the start of it was after Rick Springfield, I kind of went broke and I did publishing demos for songwriters for two years. That's where I learned the skills. That was the school of hard knocks. Sometimes three a day, I would drive around town and do demos for for songwriters. And to have songwriters arguing over your parts, yeah, uh, it, was, it, was, it was brutal, but very necessary. So after that two years, I, my skills were, in like 1989, my skills were... We're good. I did a crowded house record that got me a lot of credibility. Mm -hmm. And then I auditioned for Mr. Mr. And they didn't cho choose me. They all, I almost got, I almost got that gig, but they decided not to choose me right after that. I got this in this band called toy matinee with Patrick Leonard. And that actually, I'm doing a film about that right now, a video that actually was a, such a credible thing for me. It gave me confidence and it, it, it was right after that. So I'm going to say 1990, I I had enough confidence and enough skill to actually do it full time, and I was full on. Now, at that point, I still didn't have the skill level of somebody like Michael Thompson, who was really busy then. But I had enough. Uh, I was, I, you know, I couldn't read as good as the other guys. I wasn't quite as versatile as the other guys. But to tell you the truth, I always tried harder than anybody to please the people I was working with. I would stay late. I would show up early. I would offer them. 10 different parts, 10 different options. I always just bent over backwards for everybody. Right. So that that's how I, I, I worked my way in. So it was 1990. I was, it was, it was on full time. Nice. Well, I, man, I, you talking a little bit about your process there. I remember the first time I came over to your place and you kind of just walked, this was a long time ago, but you walked me through like when you pull up a song and you know, the, the, the different parts you give everybody, like maybe if it's just they send you a track and they don't give you explicit detail or whatever, you kind of have a thing you do that you give to people. And it is, you go above and beyond. You know, you're always giving them a lot of options. And a lot of that, of course, comes from uh, knowing what works and having done it for a long time and developed your process. But I, I, I do always feel like you you treat it very seriously. Like you have to do the best you can do which was really, I, I admire that. Like, it always seems like you want to make sure you do the best job and give people exactly what they need, but also with some options, you know. And it's, not all the guys treat it that way. And not that it's, you know, the right way or the wrong way, but I always admired the way that you seem to treat every project on the same playing field. I remember that moment when I played you that track because I was frankly embarrassed because I realized... And, and this is this happens when you have another person in the room and you play them a piece of music, it can change your perception of that music sure. immediately. You think it's one thing, and the minute somebody else is in the room with you, it turns into something else. Well, <laughs> I realized at that moment, I realized Josh is actually discovering that I'm not really even playing guitar. And, <laughs> and, and, and at the time, no, at the time I was embarrassed. But it really is the job because it's orchestration it's arrangement and it's sound oh, yeah. that's all it is and generally i took a simple part that and made it simpler every hour of my life 
And so you're basically layering and orchestrating all these sounds and parts to make a song blossom and make the composer, songwriter, artist's dream come true. And at a certain point, it's not guitar anymore. It's just sound. And it's usually the simplest version of the best part or the best version of the simplest part, as Trevor Horn used to say. So I remember that moment. I was embarrassed about it then, but now I'm kind of proud of it because it's really true. It's you, you actually got it. You understood. But for me, it was like, oh, my God, Josh is hearing me play nothing right now. <laughs> no, but that's not the way I felt about it at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. I felt like I was seeing the how you hear a track and the experience that you've built up over the years to know, right, right. OK, I don't have to play. You know, it's not, you know, OK, maybe one time one take is all you need and it's a single guitar part. It's a vibe. But you've learned, you know, when a track comes on right away to kind of feel what this needs and you then right, you build, right. you know, and it's a job, you know, and yes, there's inspiration involved. Of course, you get inspiration, you get an idea, it's improvisation, but it's also like you're building uh, a house and you have a job to do. And I always liked that approach. Like I said, I felt like you treated every project with the right amount of respect. Like you didn't just go, well, this one, they're only paying me this much. I'm only going to give them one track or this one. They're paying me this much. I'm going to give them the whole dog and pony show. It was all the same to you, which I really appreciated seeing that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's how I did it. And that's why I was able to keep working. And it's also seduction too. And you know, this, if you're working for an artist, you you're you're trying to seduce them i mean it, it really you do everything you can to to yeah. you know so that they next time they th the thing is you don't want them to think of a guitar player next time they you want them to think of you next yes time. yeah <laughs> well i've what's been interesting for me in my evolution here in la from you know not being a session guy to being a session guy and a sideman to now pretty much only doing my own stuff or producing records and still sometimes some sessions through mail. The sessions that I get now are almost 100% not just hiring me to play guitar, you know, on their thing. They're hiring me to be me. And it's, you know, they don't want a ton of parts. They don't want this and that. It's a, I'm not doing the job anymore. I'm just playing Josh Smith over the top, which is super rewarding. But also, it means I get way less phone calls. <laughs> I would say it's better, though, because I've reached the point now where I'm not the guy that you're describing now. At this point, sure. I've become more the guy. I want to be like you now. I want to be like, okay, this is what I do. Here it is. And part of that is because, you know, the web thing for me is very, you know, I, I started it 12 years ago, and that has become just incredibly rewarding. And so when I do a session... It's it's almost family and friends at this point, uh, yeah. you know, because the, the other thing has gotten so rewarding. I mean, the, the I do this little performance in every YouTube video that I work really hard on. And so yeah. I get to be it's like my solo album. YouTube is like my solo album. So I'm more like you now. And yeah. believe me, you're not I don't think you're missing anything. You 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 skipped. You stayed an artist. If you're an artist, then you have to sacrifice a lot of other stuff to be an artist. And it's worth it. So you're doing, you're in the good spot. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah, it, it is to be an artist or to just kind of when you make a decision to be something, you know, whether it's a full-time session guy or an artist or a touring guy, you're always sacrificing some other lanes. You know what I mean? It's incredibly hard to do it all. 
but being an artist, especially because you're making sacrifices financially a lot of times Absolutely. in, in def deference to what feeds your soul and what you think is the right thing to do. That's, that's an interesting, you know, cause I still get calls, not so much for giant sessions anymore, but definitely I still get calls for sideman tours that I turned out, you know, and yeah, you don't have time for that. Yeah. Josh, you will never have time for that again in your life. I predict yeah. you would, you will not have to, unless, you know, unless it's the grateful dead or whatever, you know, <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying? Or, or whatever, you know, it, it, it's, it's just, and, and people don't realize the severity of that because it's so hard. You can't be two places at once. And you and I have both had this experience where two things are happening at, at the same time on the calendar and you can only do one. There's a lot of loss involved in in what we do also because you really have to say no. And think about it. It's like being an actor. You know, you get offered two huge movies. You can only do one. The other one is the biggest movie in the world. And the one you chose is okay. You know, it's just like that. Yeah. You know, it's like being an actor. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're a hundred percent right. Um, I'm curious. Do you remember? And I know probably people have asked you all the time, "What's the best session you ever did, or the most exciting?" I'm curious. What was the biggest train wreck session ever? Do you remember? Does one stand out? Because I, I have one. Sure. I'm curious what yours is. Sure, I've got a lot of them, but the worst one was with Richard Perry on a Randy Travis Christmas song. There, there used wow. to be these records that were huge called A Very Special Christmas, and they would come out every year. I remember and, them with the, uh, the red cover with the square. Exactly. The, yeah, 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 absolutely. So like every Christmas record, they're all done in the hottest months of summer, right? We, you know that, you've done them. And so I used to do a lot of those records. And so this was at Ocean Way with Richard Perry producing. It was Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley, right? And it was a great band. Oh, my. It was I think it was Lee Sklar and Jim Cox and Lenny Castro and Rick Schlosser on drums. And it was a big band. It was amazing. Yeah. And Richard, I felt a lot of pressure because I, I actually had to do the, a sound alike of the actual part. That's really what they wanted. Yeah. And he came out into the room and yelled at me and said we need to do it in a different key can you do it more like the record more and it was like he was all over me in front of everybody and randy mm. travis was there singing and he basically you know i hate to say this but he humiliated me in front of all my heroes with the way he was yelling at me and asking me, and I, I i got it finally I was having trouble changing keys, which shouldn't have been the case because all you got to do is move your hand up the neck. But I was so rattled by his abusive, you know, he was famous for being abusive to people. And huh. and I remember we got through the session. Oh, oh, I remember I was at a certain point I was going, OK, I'm going to walk out of here. And then I looked at everybody around the room and I said to myself, that will not help these guys. If I walk out of this session. It's not going to help these guys get through this. So I didn't walk. I mean, I really, I was ready to walk after him yelling at me in front of everybody. I remember at, at the end of the session, I was out in the lounge, and you know that lounge. Randy Travis walked out and he looked at me and said, "Hey, man, great job. How you feeling?" He knew. I mean, he knew. He saw what was going on. Sure. And then every time, you know, it was like I, a couple of times after that, I'd get a call from the office of Richard Perry to do a session. It was only like twice, I think, and and I would just laugh, <laughs> no, and say no. It was, 
Oh, oh, on that day. I'm sorry to stretch this, but that that was a morning session. Okay, check this out. This is what's so great. That was a morning session. One of the worst sessions I'd ever done. I went and had lunch with my wife and Nigel, my stepson. And then I went to Cherokee and did my first session with Trevor Horn on a Rod Stewart record. And it was one of the greatest sessions. And it led to an entire Rod Stewart record and 15 years of great sessions with Trevor Horn. So you Mm. see, you just... You just you're a bulldog and you just you, you you know you get beat and then you stand back up again and you go back in and something great happens it was one wow. day it was yeah. it was like <laughs> that's amazing uh, yeah well i mean and that's so so that's something i can never relate to the two session thing never did i have any of that you know like going from one session to another or three sessions in a day like larry and you know steve gadd and these guys talk about like i i couldn't even imagine what that was like at that time can i tell you one more story that just popped in my head i'll be really quick i had one day like that i had a friend who i went to rick springfield's house and he had an actor friend there because i've stayed friends with rick and I was telling him, this actor was from Canada, and I was telling him about my week, and I said, no, I was, it was the day, day before, and I said, I said to this actor, I said, yesterday, I did a Home Depot commercial, then I went and did the original CSI, and then I w- went and did a Jamie Foxx session for Babyface on his new record. And this actor, he looked at me like, what? <laughs> I mean, it was like, it was... I did a big commercial, a big TV show, and then a big record in one day. Now, for an actor, there's a lot more money associated to those things. You see, you know what I'm saying? So for him, he was thinking, wow. And for you and I, Josh, it's, you know, they're great, but you, you know, it's, you don't get paid what an actor would get paid for those kind of things. But that was, that was another, that's how it was. I mean, at at its peak. Anyway. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine that. Like I've been reading Greg Matheson make some great posts on Facebook you know, reliving certain days and things about his career. And so many of his days were like, well, this day started here and I did this jingle and then I went and arranged, uh, you know, orchestra for this session and then I produced this artist and I finished the night at the Baked Potato. And I was like, you know, it's like, wow, what a four things in one day, you know? Yeah, just crazy. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I'm curious... You know, now that you're where you are and you've ended up doing, you know, an unbelievable job with your educational stuff and your club and the YouTube and you, you've pivoted slightly and, and having this whole new, really it is like a new profession, a new career, which is super cool. Obviously, you didn't think you were going to end up here, but looking back on, you know, all the sessions and, and the touring, did it go at all the way you thought up until now? You know, like when you were leaving Albuquerque, was it, I'm just going to make a living as a guitar player by my by any means necessary? Or did you think, you know, like you were going to join Toy Matinee or something and be in a band forever? Well, I did a solo record around 1990. Oh, and yeah, I did I two Yeah, right, yeah. And I'm still proud of it. It's, it's actually, it holds up pretty well at this point. I went out and did a couple of gigs, and I felt like... I was hearing too much guitar. It was like, so here I am in the verse, here I am in the bridge, here I am in the chorus, here I am in the outro. And then we moved to the next song. Oh, here I am in the intro, here I am in the verse, here I am in the chorus, <laughs> you're laughing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's something that you, I'm sure you've found a way to work through that and keep it interesting 
you know, because your job as a, an entertainer and a performer is to make that equation happen. I realized I didn't think I could ever pull that off. And, and so at that moment, I thought, okay, my best bet is to do this session thing because it seems to be going well. And in a way, it's you can be a little lazier if you're just, well, it's easier to just be given a job than to have to create your own job. So <laughs> as an artist, you have to create something out of nothing. It's a blank sheet of paper. But if you're a session musician, you answer a phone call and then you, you just do the best you can. It was a great, I knew that it was right for me. I knew it was right for me. So right. uh, I made peace with it. It was practical. It was doable. I was doing okay at it. I've always been able to do what's practical. And b the beginning of the web business was 12 years ago. So I started this thing 12 years ago yeah. because I, I saw myself, the business had changed. I was 50 years old and I was going, how do I want this to play out? And that's why I started the web thing. Yeah. Wow. That's a uh, good foresight 12 years ago. You know what I mean? To jump it's on. It's fear. It's just, it was fear. <laughs> fear and foresight and just, and being practical and, and, and trying to be, not kid myself. And, you know, you just, you, you, times change, you change. You know, there's a clock that's ticking. I'd been, you know, three decades of studio work and I was still doing lots of sessions, but I knew that at a certain point it would change even more and it did and it has and you know yeah. that yeah wow do you <laughs> this is a silly question but do you miss um ever touring do you ever miss touring in theory i miss touring because there are moments that are high points like you've never experienced you know you wake up in switzerland and there's a waterfall that you didn't see because you got there so late that night you know yeah. i mean it's incredible but there's also all those moments of of just waiting and i miss the idea of it and certainly when you do it for somebody who's really well funded it can be amazing like the fourth rick springfield tour we had our own private plane and wow. it was, I did, we didn't want to come home. I mean, it was yeah. like, you do that. And so I'm glad I experienced that stuff, but it's really, it really, at this point, your time is more valuable than anything. And when you tour, Josh, all of that, uh, that hard work and all of that travel is in service of the most important thing there is, which is you and your brand and your artistry and your audience and your playing right. and your songs. So it's worth it if you're an artist. It's worth it if you're in the Foo Fighters and everybody's an equal partner. Mm -hmm. But as a side musician, at a certain point, you have to decide what your time is worth. And and pretty much most side musicians, you know, if you want to transition into something else, you just can't give up all that time. You can't yeah. give it up. So in theory, I love the idea of being in a nice hotel in Switzerland or waking up in a... One time I w woke up, we parked the bus in the middle of a, like high level stock car race i literally woke up walked out of the bus and we were there were like stock cars whizzing crazy. around us and i was going this is my dream yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy yeah man well dude this is an insane career man it's so inspiring having watched you go through the arc that you have and you have such a legacy i mean that's a great thing about the session thing is you have such a wealth of, you know, 
uh, recorded history of your career to see your growth as a musician and and all your contributions to music i mean it's pretty unbelievable you ever think Thank about you. that well i i just it was tenacity and and just hanging out and waiting you know just waiting for the phone calls and taking the phone calls taking every session that led to a better session treating every employer like they were family and it adds up yeah it adds up yeah it really does it really does let's uh let's jump in the 10 questions great all right number one when you started learning and playing guitar, do you remember the very first thing that you got under your fingers correctly that just like lit the spark, set the hook, like, I can't believe I figured this out? Uh, House of the Rising Sun. <laughs> Eric Burden and the Animals. That's a good one. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But I can imagine listening to that a hundred times because it was probably on the radio every 30 minutes, you know, when it was current and and figuring it out. I mean, that feeling must just be like, like I've found a magic trick. Because I, I know that feeling. Yeah, A minor goes to C. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> D goes to F. Oh, that's really hard. But oh, I'm doing it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's unreal. Yeah, I remember, you know, learning the BB King slow blues intro. But more importantly, like after I finally learned the pentatonic scale, and the first time I was able to find the key of a song I'd never heard before on the radio and just start playing along with it, like soloing, that was like, yeah, it felt like I was a wizard now, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's no going back after that, right? You're hooked. Like, that's it. Yep. Yeah. Obsessed. Yeah. Obsessed, exactly. Do you remember the first solo you ever learned note for note, or was that something you didn't do? No, uh, it probably, I had a great guitar teacher for exactly two years, once a week. And it probably was something like Crossroads by Clapton, mm -hmm. you know, and believe me, I didn't learn the solo. I learned bits of it, uh -huh. but I think Clapton, even more than Hendrix, Clapton was more accessible. I loved BB King, but Clapton from Cream, some of his licks were the first things that I learned interesting you're not the first person i've heard say you know hendrix was was my my favorite but clapton was more accessible as a guitar player i can see that especially probably back at the time when it was fresh like where clapton if you'd listen to bb king you can relate and a hendrix probably felt like you were listening to an alien when it first came out and you'd never heard anything like that before yeah, it was it was spooky and 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 rubbery. And I do remember learning Purple Haze and it was still it was like still like I can't quite play it like this. This is so, you know, I can play yeah. these notes, but it just doesn't sound like him. You know, that's it, woo. what was it yeah. like? I'm, I'm curious the first time you heard Hendrix, because my dad has a vivid story. And again, my dad's not a musician, but he just loved music and he has an enormous vinyl collection. He's a, just a musician, a muso who listens 20 hours a day. And he says he remembers being in the car and he was big at the time into Clapton and the Beatles and Cream when he heard Purple Haze for the first time on the radio. And he said he pulled over the car. He was so freaked out because he'd never heard anything like it. And it changed his life. You know, he's an enormous Hendrix fan. And again, he doesn't play. Well, do you remember the first time you heard it? I'll, I do remember an early experience of listening. It it was like it turned my world into basically an acid trip. I mean, 
I literally, if I was sitting in the backyard and Purple Haze was coming out of a little AM radio, I could, everything, the colors were more vivid and the sky was full of, wow. the clouds were like, like spaceships that could take me places. I'm, I, I hate to say stuff like this, but it really was like, this is a window into a world beyond my comprehension and imagine uh, into the other world whatever the other world is the other re you know it's like another dimension well i mean i i remember me you know my first time hearing it and you know so you're talking about i probably heard it you know in the middle of the 80s 80 by the time i knew what i was listening to so let's say 86 or something like that 87 you know i'm a seven-year-old boy i'm way removed from it 20 plus years you know almost and and i'm wondering I, it killed me then. I can't. That's that's what I'm saying. I can't imagine when all you've heard is the Beatles or Cream, you know, and and the stuff preceding it, Motown and stuff. To have that come out, it must have just been such a culture shock to to the world. I would think. Yeah. Well, and I have to actually add this. <clears throat> so, I'm basically, you know, nine or ten years old when this thing comes out. It's 1967, I think. Right, 67. This is also the time when you're looking at girls going, oh, my God, I am just, over, I, it's like, I, I don't even know how to handle this energy. <laughs> so it all kind of gets rolled up into the, okay. it was like, you know, you're feeling stuff for the first time in your life. That was part of it, I have to say, I remember. Amazing. Woo! Yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, number three, what's the first thing you play? When you pick up a guitar your hands go somewhere on autopilot is there like an automatic thing that just happens yeah i mean it might be something like oh or you know i, I kind of check tuning so i might do an arpeggio oh so there you go <laughs> yeah uh so i either pay play an arpeggio to check the tuning mm. or i'll play god this is so fun josh uh, I'll play. Y'all go. <laughs> Clapton yeah. Blues. Exactly. You know? Yeah. What yeah. about, do you remember, you know, uh, the first time you would hit standby at a sound check or something? I had something I played almost every time, so much so that guys would parrot it back to me. So I had to stop doing it. You know, what did you used to do to like check you? I'm sure something like that. Arpeggio, check your tuning, check the, the full spectrum of tone, you know, from bassy to Yeah, no, it, it probably was never something real specific. Maybe like. God, that sounds so 80s or. So you do that and you're checking the sound at the amp. It's pretty, you know, it's just like. exactly i'm sorry exactly. it's not a specific thing or yeah. uh, you know if if i'll tell you this if somebody there was somebody in the room that maybe i wanted to show them that i could really play i'd go and then just kind of nonchalantly go yeah no that's nothing <laughs> only guitar players can relate to what you just said right there nobody else the drummers maybe do that a little bit you know what i mean but there's not often a lot of drummers out guitar players are the only ones that are always pissing and marking their territory <laughs> the second they flipped standby on the amp yeah i i remember uh, this is like 10 years ago maybe i was on tour with rafael sadiq 
and we were in Austin, Texas, and Gary Clark Jr. had just gotten signed and was getting big as like this new blues thing, right? And he was opening for us with Raphael. And so I remember we got there to sound check and I hit standby on the amp and I was just playing, but Raphael came up to me and he's like, Oh yeah, like you don't know that the hot new blues guy who just got signed <laughs> is standing right there and you're not showing him your shit right now. And I was like, I didn't even think about that. You know? Like, yeah. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I forgive um, you. I mean, yeah. that's who you are though. That's 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 and you gotta do that. If you're faced with the choice of of concealing that or you gotta do that. It it, it would be wrong to not do that. Come on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh. All right, number four. What key, style, song, groove do you have like that just just arrives in your head often? Is there something that comes a lot when you're cooking breakfast or, you know, when you're not listening to music? Or is it always different? Because for me, I have a recurring theme. I've got a shuffle that just lives there, normally in B-flat, and I'm always blowing over the top of it. I'm always hearing... And a lot of times I have to finish the thought before I can move on and continue to function. Anything like that for you that just co always lives in there? Yeah, I've discovered that that really my greatest love right now is writing these pieces of music that are basically, what I'm trying to do is recreate the, I always fell in love with the outros of these songs that I heard on the radio and all through the 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s. So you'd hear the outro and all this amazing stuff happen. And that's where the, the, the hypnotic part of the song was always the outro. So when I write for my YouTube channel, I, I create these jam tracks and I write these pieces of music. It's very easy in, in one way because I'm not trying to write a hit song. I'm not trying to... to figure out the most amazing chorus everybody's ever heard i'm just trying to create an outro that sounds like a dream so i gravitate towards i mean and honestly i realized the other day that c sharp minor and e are one of my c sharp minor and my hand fits perfectly okay so and then i'm playing in c sharp minor and then all of a sudden i'm in e and then with c sharp minor you get all these cool And then your my hand is just perfect. And if I bump any strings by accident, they are sympathetic. They're not, you know, they yeah. they work with the keys. So I love to do a combination of kind of chordal rhythm soloing. So it might be. You know, so double stops, chordal things, open strings. Stuff like that. Okay, as a B-side to that question, I'm sure because of the amount of sessions you've done, you've done probably putting some thought into re recognizing what's the first thing you hear when a track comes on that you never heard because you do it all the time you load up a track and then you realize what you're going to play so are you capable of when a track comes on hearing it in a way that your first thought isn't what would i play on top of this uh yes i am because i've been in enough situations with people where they don't and this goes back to what we talked about before. They don't want a guitar player's ego, necessarily. They want 
they want a sound that just lights up the song. So that might be one note. Mm -hmm. So I might I might go, oh, this it would be so great if I went. But then I, I look at the person and I go, maybe they actually are more interested in, in like what Coldplay is doing and I need to go. I mean, that's not the greatest example, um, but maybe it is. I mean, it's there is a moment, and I'm sure you go through this too, where you weigh maybe two or three options, and your sure. favorite option, you you check it. You go, is that just me wanting to kind of show my stuff, or is it better for me right now to kind of disappear behind everything else and just kind of make make everything else sound better and it's probably like being on a basketball team and you know b having an assist you know passing to the guy who yeah does the layup yeah i've i've found myself trying to i uh, even during this pandemic a lot i've been trying to listen to a lot of music normally about once a day try to find something i've never heard before and just on spotify you know i'll just play a record i'd never heard before and give it a shot um uh, and again I've, during that exercise, I've been kind of not just trying to find new music to like, but then I've been trying to, to pay attention to what's the first thing that I do. Am I hearing myself over the top of this or am I focusing in on groove or melody or am I harmonizing with the melody? Like what's the, or do I do or do I just start blowing in my mind over the top? And it is, it's interesting because like part of me thinks like a session guy. So I start to hear, oh, I could, this part would add to this too. And I should, this was what I would play, you know? And then the other part of me starts to analyze the tune rhythmically or melodically or whatever. And then the biggest part of me just wants to solo over the top of this song all the time. So I've been trying to notice why certain things make me think of one or the other first when I listen to a piece of music. I don't know why yet. <laughs> That's a great exercise, and for you, the soloing is important because I would think for you, when you hear somebody else's artistry, you would want to take a piece of that and add it to your own artistry, which is your songs and your productions and your yeah. playing and your soloing. That is the way I've noticed that is the main thing I'm listening for, is inspiration, but inspiration to take back into my world. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So yeah. sometimes, it, yeah, sometimes it's the way that I can tell that they've mic'd a, the guitar or something yes. or you know a, a, sometimes it's a part like i wouldn't have thought of that part you know but it, it could be anything but yeah normally it's to inform bring it back into my world you're right yeah absolutely cool man all right number five and this will be an interesting question because i kind of feel like i know your voice but i'm cur curious how you feel about it was there a moment when you felt like you started to find your voice on the instrument and did you make conscious decisions to like take that turn like i'm gonna go further this way because this is me and it doesn't sound like anybody else this was this felt like something that's mine i'm gonna go further that way yeah i mean there were certain things when i did my first solo record i had to do that i literally spent two years of my spare time finishing it and i got a small record deal luckily mm. what a miracle that was and <laughs> it got put out um and it, it was things like okay I in my soloing, there are three main elements. There is pentatonic blues, single string melodies, which I call nursery rhyme melodies. Okay. That simple, and arpeggios and chord shapes. Mm -hmm. 
So what happens is I'll do this sweet melodic phrase that's really simple. And then I'll go, uh-oh, I got to get tough now. And then I'll play pentatonic blues. And then I'll go, oh, there's a chord shape. And that'll create another melody. You know, I can I can trace a minor nine chord. And that'll create another another melody that's across strings. So the single note melody might be on one string, which is some of my favorite playing. One string playing because mm -hmm. of the timbre, it all sounds the same, and you're generally sliding. It just rules to use yeah. your word. <laughs> and then, but if I do something like that, it's so sweet and simple, I'm almost embarrassed, and I got to play tough blues right after that. And I'm talking about in, in the in the course of a two bar space. Yeah. yeah. So I'm constantly trying to freshen things up by by being sweet, sour, tough, sensitive, whatever I can do, the opposite of what I just did. Mm -hmm. And then I like I would realize I can tell you full on that if I, I pick up a strat, I'm soloing on the neck pickup because that's Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan. I don't sure. need anything else. I don't need to use for soloing on a strat, it's the neck pickup. So mm -hmm. you discover things that are yours that you never, you don't need to change for the rest of your life. And I, you know, that that's, you know, I stand behind that stuff. And it's usually little stuff. The other thing is I realized I don't need the most distorted tone. I'm like you in that way, yeah. where you want a tone where it's pick sensitive. You pick softly, yeah. it's clean. Yeah. You pick hard, it's distorted. So that's your tone. Once you find that with the particular rig you're using, you don't need to look any further. So yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. There are there are things that, that, that define you. Yeah. Do you feel like when you're when you're improvising a solo like you just described, do those those transitions do you think them or is it completely instinctual as it happens? You're not thinking it at all. I don't think about it at all. Right. Yeah, that's right. Unless think. unless I'm talking about it and I go, oh, this is, and as a teacher, which you know, I'm I'm learning to teach on the job too. There's so many great teachers that we all know. You included. You're a great teacher. Uh, as a teacher, you learn to talk about stuff. Well, I could probably five years ago, I couldn't have explained it this way, but that's what sure. it is. You know, you break things down to their elements. You can talk about them. And no, I don't think about it at all. And that's yeah, the beauty just, of what, what this is. You just feel when you're playing a, a melody, maybe yeah. a single string one, you feel that moment where you know where the blues has to happen in that you moment got it. right after it yeah you got it you yeah. know exactly what i'm talking about <coughs> amazing all right cool okay this this i'm very curious about because i think you're one of the most well-rounded guys i know so what do you consider your biggest weakness on guitar oh my uh i am i've tried it's my fingers. I mean, I want more than anything to be able to Travis pick and finger pick and 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 do this. And certainly I can I'm better at it now, but I'm still I'd like to be a hundred times better without a pick. Wow. And you know, it's just something that's eluded me my whole career. And then I always end up pick, picking up a pick and and getting it done with a pick and hybrid picking anything. I mean, you've just reminded me that I want to I need to practice fingers. Wow. That's it. I'm really, you know what? As much as I hybrid pick everything and I'm good at it, I'm terrible without the pick in my hand. I need it there. And I use my fingers plenty, but when I don't have the pick and it's just the fingers, not so good. And definitely, definitely uh, finger style on acoustic is my biggest, 100% biggest weakness. Like such a struggle. 
Yeah. Oh, we share that then. We share that. Yeah. 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 All right. Number seven. Who's a huge influence on your guitar playing that people would be surprised to hear? Um, I would say <clears throat> someone like Stephen Stills and Neil Young. Okay. Because yeah. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, the the record Deja Vu. I mean, that guitar playing, this just kind of, just kind of, really simple, soulful, great tones. I mean. A lot of that stuff, I mean, and a lot of the way songwriters would approach their guitar parts in the 80s, you know, sure. like like a band like Pablo Cruz in the 80s. I mean, I cringe wow. even mentioning them. I mean, they had amazing guitar solos. As much as we used to laugh at the band Sticks, those uh -huh. guitar solos, Bachman yeah. Turner Overdrive, those guitar yeah. solos. So yeah. you go back to the late 70s and all of the bands that were just kicking ass out there. Yeah. I mean, even Gary Richrath from REO Speedwagon. Sure. So yeah. you you go to all these guys, but here's here's one that you'll really respect. Probably the most the guy that is the most in my DNA as a guitar player was Johnny Winter. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that I you probably didn't expect that, and I I, I realized realized it about a year ago. I did uh, some work with Edgar Winter here at this house. Right. Last you know before the the pandemic and. I, I realized, you know, I, there was a record called Johnny Winter and that was live that I listened oh, yes. to. You know, I probably listened to that about 800 times. Yeah. And wow. it's Johnny Winter. That's cool, man. See, I, I mean, I love Johnny Winter and he is kind of in that category of, well, everybody knows Johnny Winter. Everybody's listened, but he never comes up a lot of times when guys are going through their top three, top five, you know, and but yeah, we've all listened. I mean, I listened to Johnny Winter a million times. <laughs> A million yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. You're right. All right. Number eight. In a gig situation, would you rather have a great guitar and a shitty amp or vice versa? A great amp and not a good guitar. They're both uh, fatal. You know, <laughs> it, 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 I, I have to have a guitar that I can actually play. But if it's if you're talking survival on a gig, mm -hmm. you're not going to hear the shitty amp over the cymbals and the drums. Mm -hmm. uh, and if it's a loud shitty amp, then I'd rather have a better guitar. But if it's <laughs> if it's if it's a shitty amp that's underpowered, then I'll take the shitty guitar and a better amp. The amp okay. you have to have a loud enough amp to play quietly on your rhythm parts and then be able to sail over the whole band during your you know lead parts. Yeah. So the amp at least has to be powerful enough to do that, and that means getting louder than the drummer. Mm -hmm. uh, but a shitty guitar, I have so much trouble live. I will play. You know, live. My guitar needs to play like butter live, because mm -hmm. I don't want to fight the thing. I don't mind fighting a guitar in the studio because that's character. It's it's it creates something. Right. But live, I don't want to be fighting the instrument. So. I, I didn't really answer, but I sort of answered. <laughs> you answered both ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's weird. I've I've done so many fly dates in my life, like, you know, thousands at this point. And it's it's always led me to the realization that, you know, all these fly dates, I have my guitar and I have my pedals sometimes, you know. But if I get stuck playing into like a Marshall, you know, 2000s, you know, with with digital reverb into a closed back cabinet or something like that, I'm going to have a horrible gig. 
Now, horrible gig is relative. Like, I'll still pull the gig off, and the audience may not know the difference. But to me, I'm going to hate every second of this gig. As opposed to, if I just even get a twin reverb, that the reverb works and it, it functions and it's loud enough, I could pull that gig off and have a better time, even if I was forced to play some other guitar, than vice versa. And I don't know, that's always been that way. Uh, that totally makes sense to me because if if you, your people should once in their lifetime everybody who is a fan of yours should be able to put one of your guitars in their hands and realize <laughs> the cables the yeah. steel cables that are actually on your guitar you have the strongest hands in the world so that totally makes sense to me and it's it's very you know it's something we can all learn from yeah I can muscle a guitar to work any guitar totally kind totally. of but, but yeah. if I have like yeah some amp that just doesn't do it I know it's a worse night for me yeah for sure all right uh number nine what keeps you motivated to continue to put in the work and to grow as a as a player because i mean i hear it i hear you working on new stuff i mean you post videos all the time on youtube so i can hear you know over the last five years things that are different like i never heard tim play that before you know what keeps you growing at this point because it's something that i obsess about as I, you know, now I'm 41, and as I grow, also we've all seen guys who we grew up with who were the local heroes who at some point stopped growing. And that was an obsession for me, like, oh, man, he sounds the same as he did 20 years ago. There's nothing new coming out. Do you worry about that? Is What keeps you motivated? Well, it's a lot of things. It's several things. But the first thing that keeps me motivated is you. And, 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 and you're, I mean, because... I don't need to be Josh Smith, but maybe I need something that you're doing and I can grab something you're doing and incorporate something you're doing. And this is a great lesson for anybody who's who's following you or or any any guitar player is that you can take a piece of somebody and make it yours very quickly and very efficiently. Yeah. And you keep adding those pieces and it changes you and shapes you. So it's you and and your buddies and and you know this guitar is at this amazing level right now and you're part of this group of people that have are keep pushing the envelope i realized a long time ago i don't have to be the first guy in line I, you know i can be the guy who gets the pedal six months later i can be the guy that learns the lick six months later in some ways it's 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 sneaky and it's smart that way because i can let you do the work you can be the tip of the spear and i can go hey i'm going to take that sweet little thing that he did and I'm going to, you know, make it part of my vocabulary. So it's all of you, right? It's also this recognition at my age that I've been doing this now for 50 years. I've been doing sessions as a professional in L.A. for 40 years. And I still have not mastered this thing in any way, shape or form. Yeah. So it's probably like any pro golfer or anybody who does there's kind of a Zen to it where you realize, Oh, I'm just scratching the surface. Yep. It never ends. It never ends. Do you, let me just ask you, do you ever worry about maintenance? Like keeping what you've got, you know, as you get older, I worry about it because that was another thing about guys who I really respected as a kid who would sometimes start to go down the hill, you know, and I'm realizing now some of those guys I saw start to go the other way we're already we're only like the age I am now when they started to lose some facility, you know. Well, you actually mentioned that to me uh, a couple of years ago, and I sent you a video I had just done that wasn't even that great, but I was actually playing 
as fast as I could and playing faster than, as you know, as fast as I've ever played. Yeah. I don't think that's a problem until you maybe maybe get into your 70s. So my mm. young friend, you have a lot of time. <laughs> Guitar players in their 60s are still pretty ferocious. Yeah. I'm not talking about myself. You know, I mean, and, and this will give you an example. I had a long conversation two nights ago after listening to three songs that are new by Alan Hines. Okay. Uh -huh. Alan, I believe, is a couple years older than me. Oh. And right. it's getting better. That thing he has is getting better. Yeah. So, my friend, do not worry. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. It is because it's a weird thought. You know, it's like I always, from afar, saw Les Paul and it was like, well, I, I want to be like that. I want to play until I can't play anymore and play well, you know? Because I did see guys who. Maybe it was just their work ethic, though. Maybe they just stopped putting in the amount of effort necessary to maintain. But I well, it made an impression on me. And and it, it also, I want you to forgive these people because there are people who just say to themselves, I already did that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, we know you and I have a hero who I'm not going to mention, but we saw him recently and he's in that spot where yeah he's more of like i already did that and mm -hmm. yeah. it's okay you know you're right you're right everybody has has their own level of contentment with what's going on and you yeah. got to respect that without question yeah all right number 10 do you have a 5 year plan are you a guy who makes goals and and needs to achieve them or is it always just reaction for you and going with the flow? I, I tend to work better with some sort of goals. I don't normally put time on them, but I like to at least have them. Things that I would like to achieve. How about you? I didn't really have to do that <clears throat> because I got so busy doing sessions that everything I did was a reaction. And it was a job that I treasured and a job very few people get to do. So I knew I just had to actually do it as the best I could for as long as I could. But like I said, at age 50, uh, when I heard about these guitar teachers who had big businesses, mm -hmm. I thought, okay, how do I want to transition? How do I want the next chapter of my life to be? Because this session thing is going to change. It's already changing. So it was more a life plan uh, than a five-year plan. Mm -hmm. I made a conscious decision. I did a double shift for 10 years, for an entire decade. I couldn't do it now, from 50 to 60, doing the session thing almost full time and, and doing the web business in all my spare time every weekend. I didn't take a vacation for 12 years. Right. So I was able to build this new business. So I did two life plans. One life plan was to do the practical job of being a session player. And then my second life plan was to create a teaching business. change my life in this chapter what i didn't expect was for that teaching business to actually give me the chance to be an artist for the first time so i get to be an artist on youtube and do exactly what i want and have thousands of people see it and you know you're feeling the same thing as hard as it is to do youtube you play something and ten thousand people see it or a hundred thousand people see it you go wait a second 
that's an audience I just performed for. So that's part of my artistry. So that's been the greatest gift about this. So it's been two life plans. And I've been able, when I choose a life plan, I just put my head down and persevere. And so, yeah, it's not five-year plans. It's it's basically two life plans. Nice, man. Well, I just just saying you're an incredible inspiration to me because I see you put in the work. You make a decision, you do something, and you work it, you do it as best you can. And that's always been the way that I've tried to <laughs> approach everything that I do. And it's always it's been very inspiring to see your career and, and always just you know you're always just such a helpful guy i mean you're always there when i have a question and it's greatly appreciated man you're truly an inspiration and dude thank you for taking the time out of your day to do this thank you it was actually kind of electrifying and fun i really enjoyed yeah. it a lot yeah i think people will enjoy enjoy the conversation um for the the rulers we're gonna do turn turn two in a second but if you are not a ruler you should become one or at least please subscribe to the channel because it will keep me motivated to continue creating content. <laughs> but there will be links to all things Tim Pierce in the body here. So please go sign up for Tim's educational stuff. Subscribe to Tim's YouTube channel. Buy Tim's solo record. You know, all the things you can do to support Tim and his great music and artistry. Uh, dude, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. You're welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. All right. Rulers, we'll be right back.